The Apostle Paul had for 25 years been preaching the gospel of Christ. He'd begun around Jerusalem, right around the northern part of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Corinth. He had finished and completed his work in the eastern part of the empire. He is now looking to the west and writing a letter to the church at Rome outlining his gospel and how he sees it's going. When he looks back on that time, there are two observations that he can make. One is that Israel was very slow to respond to the gospel. In fact, they'd been quite hostile to him. On the other hand, the Gentiles, well, they had embraced it in larger numbers than what they'd expect. In fact, in the church at Rome, what you have is more Gentiles, even though they started off with Jews. As we've been following through all this, Paul says that this is constantly on his heart. It's an anguish that his own people have not been receiving the gospel. And in chapters 9 through to chapters 11, he deals with this. Chapter 9, last week, we heard about how God is absolutely sovereign in absolutely everything. He runs that sovereignty with the theme of mercy. Today, what we'll hear is that man is absolutely responsible for what God has done towards him. And when he comes and stays uh, before God on the day of judgment, he will have to be responsible for his actions. It is all through faith. That is what he is required to do. Today, as we look at chapter 10, I'm going to ask a question, make a statement, and then urge us to do something. Here's the question. Why was Israel not saved? If we read 10 verses 1 and 2, we have these words. Paul again reiterates his intention that his people would believe. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites that they may be saved. I can testify about them that they're zealous for God but their zeal is not based on knowledge. The Israelites, they had been so trying so hard to please God. They had their various religious things that they did. They had their various social things that they did. But the trouble was it was their righteousness that they were trying to perform. They sought their own righteousness. Rather, says Paul, God's righteousness. There was zeal, but not knowledge. 
If you are going to be right before God, you must be absolutely perfect if you're going to do it your own way. I tried to give this illustration early today, but obviously it didn't work. So I'm going to try it again and see if it will work. Suppose we think in terms of lengths and heights. If I go to the peak of Mount Everest, I am very, very much higher than on the shores of the Dead Sea. In fact, there is a world of difference between those. That is the lowest point and the highest point. When I look at people, I can see that there are some people who I think comparatively live a very good life. In fact, in that sense, one are like at the peak of Mount Everest and the other at the depths of the earth, that is, the shores of the Dead Sea. If, however, we want to compare ourselves with God's righteousness, then we've got to act as perfect. And we've got to think in terms of the furthest star, which is light years away, that is, light travelling at 300,000 kilometres per second for millions of years. If you compare that righteousness that perfection with this small uh, amount of distance between the Said Sea and Mount Everest, well, you could say they're just about the same. There's no way in the world that they are the same. Similarly, no matter how righteous a man might try to be, every person knows in their heart that they are sinful they cannot attain the righteousness that is required. They are people who might be very zealous, but they are obviously not enlightened to see who the Holy God is. On this building site, you will see workmen wandering around all over the place. Just suppose there is a builder who was wandering around looking for the stone that really fits everything into place, the chief cornerstone, if you like. Well, you see them wandering around and, in fact, they stumble over it. Paul likens the Jews to that. There is a cornerstone that God has placed, but they've stumbled over it. They when they hear of Christ and his righteousness, instead of responding to it, they actually stumble against it, over it. They cannot see Christ. They are hostile to what Christ has done. They are hostile to his apostle. Why was Israel not being saved? Because they did not see the righteousness of Christ as the perfection that was required. That is how Paul argues. Now, he moved from that to a statement. My second point, salvation is possible not just for the Jews, but for everyone. 
In verse 4 it says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes, not just the Jew, but also for the Gentile as well, also for us. This in Christ Jesus, in his perfect life, perfect in every way is the claim that is made, that he is our righteousness and we receive that by trust and are saved. Salvation, he repeats as he he goes over this point, salvation does not require heroic acts. Let me uh, bring you back to the time of Moses, who was the great lawgiver. When they were on the Exodus, he was asked by God to come up on Mount Sinai and he brought back God's law. Now, what we have here in verse 5 is Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. And he says, the person who does these things will live by them. If you're going to be righteous before God, you need to keep them absolutely perfectly. Well, what did he then say to these people who are saying, well, where's the law? Moses says, well, you don't have to go up into the heavens and do some heroic act and bring it back down. And you don't have to go down into the depths and bring it up. But where is the law? Well, he says, here it is, and I want you to learn it by heart, and not only learn it by heart so that it's within you, but also teach it to your family so that it is in your mouth constantly. Paul is saying, that now that Christ has come as the culmination of the law, what we need is Christ in our hearts. You don't have to go up into the heavens to go looking for him. He has come near. He is the one to be in our hearts and the gospel is to be upon your lips. So Paul in another place will say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So where is this salvation? Not in heroic acts. It's in the Christ who will dwell within you. Well, what about this gospel? It may be, as we've just had it on the screen, or, as Luke tends to summarise it out, the Christ has died, the Christ has been raised. This is according to the Old Testament scriptures. We are to repent and to believe. 
God will give us the Holy Spirit. He'll give us forgiveness. He'll give us eternal glory with him. It's near you. You don't have to go searching all over the place. He is near and his righteousness is near. We read verse 6. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. Scripture says, anyone, I underline it, anyone, I underline it, anyone who believes in him, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, whoever, anyone will be saved and never be put to shame. He then goes on to say the same thing again. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just in case... You haven't got that point. I'll take you now to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. There's no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Justified, he takes the picture of the law court. You stand before God. You need a righteousness. You are justified as a gift by God. He then takes you from there to the slave market. You are bound in slavery to sin and to judgment. Christ has paid the ransom and you are redeemed. You are set free from those things. Then he takes you to the temple and there on the altar has been the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice which turns the wrath and right anger of God away from us by his death. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What we need to do is to believe in our hearts and confess 
with our lips that Jesus is Lord. Well, here's my urging. What we ought to do then is we ought to keep praying for the preachers. Uh, Paul obviously is a preacher by the way he speaks, uh, bursts into a fit of eloquence and he says, verse 14, how then can they call upon the one in whom they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent? Is it written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Salvation comes by calling on the Lord. You cannot have faith unless there be the hearing of Christ. We cannot hear Christ without there being the preacher. We cannot have preachers unless God sends them. We ought to be constantly praying that God will send preachers. When I was the Bishop of Wollongong, uh, there was a very fine older gentleman who was a great preacher and he came to see me. He said, you're going to have... Uh, a young man visit you and he's going to ask about ordination and preaching. He can't preach for nuts. Now, whether that gentleman was right in his judgment or not, we don't want people who are just preaching. We want preachers who are sent by God who have a calling from God, whom God has anointed for this work because we need people of faith so that we can receive it by faith. That is how the gospel goes, from faith to faith, he says in chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is to be by faith to faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall be saved. We ought to keep on praying that God will send us preachers from God. The second thing is we ought to keep on praying that people will be able to hear the preacher Um, that we'll actually be able to believe it in our hearts when it is proclaimed to us and confess it with our lips so that we will be saved and anyone will be saved. I look back to that time when I sat in a little church at Coldale and the preacher had walked down from Scarborough, preached that Christ had to be received by Lord and somehow or other something worked in me to believe it and to receive it. We need to be calling for God's activity for the preacher, 
and for the hearer. Then we see he talks about Israel refusing to hear the preaching. In verses um, 16 he says, Not all Israel accepted the good news. Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? Did they not hear? He says in verse 18. Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Now, that actually is part of an Old Testament scripture, Psalm 19. I'm not quite sure whether he is saying he has preached around the Mediterranean and other preachers. In other words, it's gone out like that to all the ends of the earth and he's still doing that now. Whether he's saying that even the creation uh, preaches it, maybe he is. Uh, In Psalm 19, it runs like this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork day to day. Um, Pours forth speech, night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. But their voice is heard through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And isn't that true? Um, When you look at the universe, you you can't help but say, well, God is there. One old clergyman used to grab hold of me when I walked past his house and he'd say, look at this rose. How can people say there is no God? Look at that. So I'd look at it and I, I, I think, yes, surely there is a creator. And it's a kind creation to us that he made for us. He's a God of mercy. I don't know, as I say, whether Paul is talking about the preaching through the apostles or whether it's by the creation. Apparently at eight o'clock when I said that, magpies all burst into song behind me. What, what Paul is saying anyway, there is the preaching of the gospel, but it's like him being a lead singer and a great band and orchestra of the universe behind, confirming the preaching of the gospel. Well, here is the question. He says, I have been found by those who did not seek me, those Gentiles who didn't have all the blessings that Israel had. I I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Well, has he given up on Israel? Come next week.
I'll give you a key. It's in verse 19. Moses says, in God's name, I will make you, Israel, envious by those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. I think it is on Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 that the next chapter is based. Thanks.